Well, I invite you now to uh, turn with me to uh, Genesis uh, chapter 5. We're actually just going to start reading uh, just at the end of chapter 4, verse 25. But I want to read uh, down to the end of chapter 5, Genesis 4, 25 down to 5, uh, 32. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So Seth also, uh, to Seth also a son was born, and his name was Enosh. At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived for 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Adam, that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived for 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after, after he had fathered Enosh for 807 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh lived for 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan for 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Canaan had lived for 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Canaan lived after he had fathered Mahalalel for 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived for 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he had fathered Jared for 830 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived for 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch for 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived for 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived for 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech for 782 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. 
When Lamech had lived for 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah for 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Amen. Let's pray for a moment. Father, thank you for your word. And as we come to it, we pray you'd help us to draw out from it all that would help us uh, to, to walk with you and to know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what were we to make of a passage like that? Uh, Genesis chapter 5, a genealogy. Um, well, th- there are some lessons that we're going to learn from it. But uh, last time we looked at Genesis, we, uh, we, we saw the, the miserable spread of sin uh, in the life of Cain. Um, uh, and it emerged in the life of Cain uh, uh, through his worship, which was found to be inadequate. Uh, his worship, his act of sacrifice, was not cons- uh, regarded by God. Um, and the reason is because it was not offered in faith. Um, so he did the right things, but he, he didn't offer it in faith, as uh, Hebrews 11 verse 4 tells us. And, uh, and that was pointed out to Cain. And it was out of, and, and Cain didn't take t- kindly to being pointed out by God. And so from within himself uh, emerged and welled up this uh, fountain of, of anger and malice and jealousy and resentment, which resulted in uh, him murdering his brother Abel. And we saw how sin, uh, so, so we see the, the intensity of sin growing in the life of, of Cain, but we also saw how it became evident in subsequent generations. Uh, there's, a, there's a brief genealogy in chapter 4 of the, the line of Cain. And uh, when you get to the seventh generation after Cain, uh, a, a Lamech, there's a different Lamech that's in chapter 5. Uh, there's a Lamech that appears, and uh, he d- there's a couple of things that appear in his life. Uh, he ignores the God-appointed order for marriage, so he, instead of a man and a woman coming together in in marriage as God appointed it in the Garden of Eden. Uh, He takes two wives. And uh, so he just says, I'm going to ignore God. Uh, That's what I'm going to have two wives. Um, And then he, uh, his, the the attitude of his heart uh, comes out in the song that he, he tells his two wives uh, in verses 23 and 24. Um, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me. Uh, a young man for striking me. So he is bragging about how he kills people who cross him. And then he says, in, in verse 24, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, now that's the judgment that God uh, would carry out on anybody who put, laid a finger on Cain. So God was going to come. Uh, Lamech says, if anybody comes against me, then Lamech's 
is 77-fold. I'm going to carry out you know, 11 times the judgment of God on anybody who comes against me. And I'm singing about it. You know, so come on, you lot. You know, do your worst. It's a kind of attitude of vindictiveness and violence uh, and domination uh, against anybody who crossed him. So such was the effect of, of sin which Cain was told was crouching at his door that uh, uh, and Cain and his descendants are, are warned to, to rule over the sin otherwise it will take you like prey uh, but they didn't Cain didn't uh, subsequent generations didn't and so the miserable outcome is this uh, miserable song um, a really unpleasant song of Lamech uh, in verses 23 and 24. Now the genealogy, this terrible genealogy uh, in chapter 4, now gives way to um, another genealogy uh, in chapter 5. And this time uh, the genealogy of, of another son of Adam, uh, which we're briefly introduced to at the end of chapter 4 uh, of Seth. And when we come to this chapter 5, it's the, it's the kind of chapter, isn't it, that most people kind of jump over and say, oh, it's only a list of names. We can skip over that and uh, just go on to the next bit. Get into the exciting narrative parts. Um, but as is usually the case, there are features and details and indeed treasures that we ought to look out for when we see what may seem like a, a boring section. We need to be careful about thinking the, the Bible is boring because we often miss things that are important. Uh, let me just make a few observations about the text, first of all, before we get into the, the teaching of it. Uh, but notice, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, there is uh, a repeat of the way that God made man in his image. Um, and uh, verses 1 and 2 uh, kind of hark back to chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Do you remember? Uh, where uh, God says he made man in his image, uh, male and female, he created them and blessed them and called them man and so on. Uh, and it's a reminder, of course, uh, in chapter 5, of the, the continuing privileged status that mankind has in all creation, even though he has, uh, has fallen. Second observation is that uh, the genealogy follows a line, uh, a, a line of single sons all the way through, uh, there are many other sons and daughters of each generation, but there's a single individual that's pointed out uh, in, in each line. Uh, but then the pattern changes when it comes to Noah at the end, uh, because n when Noah is mentioned, all three of his sons are mentioned, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And that then kind of opens the door to a narrative in chapter 6, 7, and 8, and 9. Uh, of the story of Noah and uh, uh, so uh, which is obviously going to be a very significant story then a third thing to notice is uh, notice the, the break in the pattern of uh, uh, of descriptions of each generation so each generation has uh, a period of time before the first son appears then the name of the son and then a period of time afterwards that the, the father lived um, and that he had other sons and daughters 
and then a summary of the total number of years the person lived, and then this this kind of pounding statement, and then he died. So every pat- every generation has that pattern. But the pattern is broken at the seventh generation. So Adam's the first, Enoch is the seventh. And uh, and there are significant details about Enoch that are pointed out, which we will come to. And then finally, uh, notice, and I've mentioned this already, but notice the drumbeat all the way through uh, of at the end of each generation's description. There's that statement, and he died. And he died. It's a continuing reminder that the curse of God uh, given in Genesis chapter 3 is now very much in play. People will die. Uh, the exception to that is, is Enoch, but we'll come to that uh, later. So what can we learn from this chapter? Uh, now, first of all, I need to deal with a bird in the room, as it were. <laughs> uh, you know, if you're a teacher in a school schoolroom and the windows are open and a bird flies in, you can try and keep on teaching, but the bird is going to distract everybody. So what's the distracting bird in this story? Um, uh well, the question is, why do these people live so long? Uh, the, the lifespan of all these these men seems to be about 10 times what we currently experience today. The shortest lifespan is, is Enoch, is 365 years. But as, as we'll see, he didn't actually die, he was taken away. But And the longest lifespan is 969 years. So it's something like 10 times the length of today's uh, lifespan. And because it's so different, um, people are naturally tend to think that this is, is not a literal story, that these are not literally true numbers. Um, but I need to say to you that the, the ar- I make the same argument that I made with the six days of creation. Uh, remember, there's a significant difference between what the Bible says and what scientists say. And here's here's another occasion of that here. Scientists say that lifespan is generally uh, what it usually is today, and it's never been anything different. But the Bible's presenting a different picture here. But we need to say this, that if God is God, and we, we need to trust his word. And remember this, that prior to the fall, man, uh, man was to live forever. Um. Uh, and with the application of the curse, it is then up to God when people die. Uh, so God gives life. Uh, God takes away life. God, it's, it's up to God when he gives life and when he takes away life. Uh, and so if you, if you doubt the numbers here, uh, then you're actually doubting uh, God's involvement in human history and human individual lives that God uh, you doubt the state into which man was created in the first place uh, that he was to live forever and that the curse then uh, God is at liberty to to grant to bring death whenever he wants but let me just push this a bit further and uh, suggest uh, some positive reasons uh, which are, are I admit speculative uh, but positive reasons why long lifespans are in accord with God's purposes for man. Uh, the, and the first, so three things. Firstly, 
is to do with population, the question of populating the earth. God had given a command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth in 128, and that's, that's not been rescinded. And so mankind is still to populate the earth. And of course, that's going to be helped by long lives in these early generations. And every generation, you'll notice, is described as, ha- as having had other sons and daughters, apart from the one that's singled out. Uh, now, just think about this. How many children can you have if you have lived 10 times longer? Uh, not families of two or three or one, as, as we often have today, but many, many more. And so uh, you have these grand families growing and populating the earth and generations uh, growing very quickly. The second reason that it would be advantageous for long lives is to do with uh, cultivation, uh, cultivating the earth uh, and bringing it under control. It's much easier to do this with uh, large families uh, than with smaller families, with people who live longer than shorter lives. And the third reason is... uh, and perhaps this is more significant, um, is, is to do with revelation. Revelation. What I mean is that the things that God has said and done in chapter 3 can now be passed down subsequent generations with more certainty. Um, if you think about Adam's lifespan here, if you work it out, uh, Lamech, who is eight, gen- the, uh, eight generations later, would be about 56 before Adam died. And just think about that. We are used to living with, um, you know, our parents and uh, usually our grandparents. And sometimes, uh, perhaps unusually, but sometimes we have our grandparents still around. So maybe three generations, uh, two or three generations that are older than ourselves. But Lamech knew seven generations older than himself. Uh, It would have been eight if Enoch had not been taken away. But uh, he knew multiple generations beforehand. And the point about Revelation is that Adam knew what God had said and done and could pass it on to successive generations. And so if you have Adam always at the head of the family, as it were, uh, making sure that the, the stories about God and the truth about God is passed down accurately. Well, I hope those suggestions are helpful in understanding uh, the length of life. Um, beyond that, I don't think we can go much further uh, than trying to under- in trying to understand the length of life. Uh, we must leave all those kind of questions uh, to glory when we get to be with the Lord Jesus Christ and all things will be explained. So what are the lessons then that we can learn from uh, this chapter that will help us today? Three things I want to just draw your attention to. First of all, uh, from Seth, people began to call upon the Lord. And you see this in 426. To Seth also a son was born, his name was Enosh, and at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This marks out, uh, is such a stark contrast with the, light, the line of Cain and the life of Cain. And last week we, we noticed how appalling it must have been for Eve, who had been blessed in the garden and had enjoyed that communion with with God until the point where she 
uh, ate the fruit. And now she has experienced uh, anger and malice rising up in one of her sons, leading to murder, the first death in the world through uh, the hand of one of her sons. And it seems that Eve turned to the Lord in a new way as she identified Seth, her third son, as another seed, another offspring. And perhaps at this point she was remembering um, the, uh, the promise uh, and warning that was given to the serpent by promise for Adam and Eve that uh, there would be a, uh, the seed of the woman would uh, uh, destroy the, the head of the, the seed of the serpent. And it's at this point that uh, with the, the appearance of Seth and his family that people began began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, this is a term that is used throughout the Bible to describe the people of God. The people of God are the people who call upon the name of the Lord. It, it's coincidental, actually, that we, we read from 1 Corinthians. It wasn't actually intentionally keyed into the passage today, but did you notice that how the Corinthians were described? Uh, or the, the people that Paul is addressing were described? He addresses the saints in Corinth and... Uh, all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Uh, Christians are people who call upon the name of the Lord. This is how you tell that somebody is a Christian. They have a habit of calling upon the name of the Lord. They are people of prayer. They cry out to God. They call upon the God. They seek God. They seek God in prayer. They seek God in his word. Uh, they want to draw near to him, that he might draw near to them. That's what uh, marks out a Christian. And this is what we see here in Genesis chapter 5. And it's, it's really important that we, that we uh, pay attention to this. Because in chapter 4, we've had that miserable picture of, of Cain and his descendants who give themselves over to their, uh, uh, their, their sinful passions. Uh, they don't deal with the, the sin that's crouching at the door. They, they welcome it in. <laughs> and they, begin, they just give themselves to the, the passions. And all the consequences of violence and vindictiveness that appears in the descendants of Cain. Um, but in, in the midst of all of that, misery of the human condition at the same time we have some people a few who begin to call upon the name of the lord and this has always been the way of of god and his purposes that for all the evil and destruction of the world god sets about preserving a remnant of people for himself a people who call upon his name. Let me ask you this morning, are you a person who's in the habit of calling upon the name of the Lord? Is this your habit? Are you a man or woman of prayer, seeking God's face? Not just going through the motions, not just uh, having a routine, but in your heart of hearts, seeking God and calling upon the Lord. God is still at work. Today, even today, preserving a remnant of his people for himself. 
and uh, we should trust him and call upon him so that's the first thing the people of God call upon the Lord but here's the second thing we see in this chapter uh, as we come to chapter 5 notice the preservation of the image of God here Um, and of course we know that from chapter 1 that man is made in the image of God Uh, and when we looked at that we let me just remind you we saw the image the image is is not simply a matter of physical physical appearance it's not really about that at all uh, really the image of god is about the way in which adam has been made with certain virtues of knowledge righteousness and holiness um, now as sin has entered in when uh Adam and Eve fell uh, as it were the the image of God has been vandalized by sin uh, it's, it's rather like someone might graffiti over uh, you know a, a very famous painting like the Mona Lisa in Paris you know somebody comes and daubs the paint over it you can and you can see the vestiges of the of the image you can still see that the, the image is still there but on on the surface is this graffiti that's been uh, spread over it. Uh, and that's kind of like Adam. Uh, the image can be seen in part, but now it's obscured by sin. And what we find in chapter 5 is that the, the idea of the image of God is reasserted in chapter 5. So this is still true of human beings, even in their fallen state. We continue to bear the image of God. But there's an interesting comment that's made uh, in verse 3 about Seth. Uh, Let me read it to you. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered uh, a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And he was made, interestingly, uh, not just in the image of God, but also in the image of Adam. And this is significant because it means that Seth inherits not the pristine perfection of Adam when he was first made, but the characteristics of the fallen Adam now after his sin. And sin affects everything about the human condition, the human heart. So sin affects uh, the mind, as we have seen in Romans chapter 1 in our studies there, it affects the mind, it affects the affections, what you love in life, it affects the will. Everything is fallen about the human condition. And and Seth follows in the image of Adam here. However, the, the emphasis on this chapter is that for all the fallenness of human nature being passed down now from generation to generation, God is preserving his image, albeit a marred image. And the fact that it is said over this genealogy is a hint that God is at work in these generations in his grace. In fact, we should expect his gracious working from what we know in the, of the promise in, in Genesis 3.15, where there will be a saving seed who will come, who will defeat the seed of the serpent once for all. Now, Seth is described as a seed 
an offspring. But he is not the ultimate seed. And for that, you need to go to other genealogies in Scripture. So, for example, and the key one here is is Luke chapter 3 in New Testament, where you'll see a direct line going from Jesus all the way back to Seth. Look it up. You'll see Seth and Adam, for that matter. And the great truth here is that throughout history, God has always worked out his plans with expert precision. When he promises things, he fulfills. Now, sometimes to to our eyes, it looks a bit dodgy and precarious. Uh, And after all, you know, when you look at single sons that are mentioned here, and it's like a single person in each generation that's pointed out, um, you might wonder if that's, sufficiently robust a plan that God is pursuing doesn't God have a backup plan doesn't he have doesn't he build in redundancy uh, just in case things go wrong that's the kind of thing we would do um, well the answer to that of course is no he doesn't need to because he knows what he is doing and he knows how to do it and he makes it happen so he knows everything he is perfectly in control of his plans and purposes for redemption, the whole thing. And so no matter how precarious it looks, it's not to God. God knows exactly what he's doing. And so, you know, the question for us is, do you believe today that God continues to act like this? Uh, do you believe that God knows what he is doing? Uh, that no, no matter how flimsy you feel that your life is or you feel that our churches or the church generally in the western world no matter how flimsy and pathetic it all seems do you believe that God is working out his promises in the midst of it it's a great challenge for us isn't it to believe everything that God has promised so God is preserving his image and he's doing so through a line that leads ultimately to Christ But finally, we see in this chapter, uh, hope of eternal life. Hope of eternal life. Uh, I noted already that you see this depressing drumbeat all the way through this chapter. This statement, and he died, and he died, and he died, and so on. Uh, We mentioned earlier that uh, that, uh, the benefits of long life... That long life is having in so many gen- when so many generations are alive at one time, but it also means that. But one of the downsides of that is that each person sees members of subsequent generations die. Death, I think, would be frequent and uh, it'd be a close occurrence because it'd be family members that would be dying. You know, we're we're used to think perhaps uh, experiencing our death of grandparents and then at some point death of our parents. Uh, But it's two generations, but think of seven generations perhaps that you could potentially experience death uh, during your life. And this, this notion of death, this drumbeat of death, would be a continual reminder to the people of God of the curse that God has put on mankind. And it would be a continual reminder, I think, for men and women who are calling upon the name of the Lord 
to remember, to repent of sin and turn to God. See, um, and I have no doubt that this godly line used death in this way to call upon the Lord. You see, friends, one, one of the features of our Western society is that we seek to insulate ourselves from the pain of death, uh, either our own death or the death of others around us. You know, it's a, frankly, it's a, it's a taboo subject. People don't like to talk about it. Um, and when illness comes, you know, we expect the, the NHS to come along and sort us out and fix us. And if, if it can't, then we hope it'll be a quick death. Um, and, you know, regularly in the United Kingdom, we have these, uh, you know, as I think over the last 20 years or so, there's been reg- a regular a- appearance of somebody trying to change the law to allow euthanasia for the chronically sick or disabled. And it's happening again, uh, even as we speak. Because we always want to find ways uh, for, to shuffle people off this mortal coil without us having to go through the pain of, of decay and death. And when people are dead, we don't seem to have funerals anymore. We have celebrations of life. We for, almost, it's almost like we forget the person's dead because we want to just re- enjoy the life. you know. And we try and pretend, uh, meanwhile, that whatever you... It doesn't seem to matter what you believe. Uh, we always say things like, so-and-so has gone to a better place. How, how do you know that? How does the world know that? Gone to a better place. Somewhere, but it's, it's a, a coping mechanism with the, the whole process of death. And we're just not very good at it. And we cover up and we tell ourselves lies. Because for many people, uh, dying is not going to a better place. And it's going to, for many people, it's a place that's going to a place of, that's infinitely worse than what we currently experience. That's why... You know, plans for euthanasia are so egregious. It's ushering people into hell. In all of this, we miss the main issue. That our lives are actually all... It doesn't matter who you are. Christian, non-Christian, whatever religion you are. Your hands are in the... Your lives are in the hands of a holy God who gives life and takes it away in his time. And the correct response to our mortality is to realize that very soon each one of us is going to have to come before God and account for our lives. And therefore, we need to repent of our sins and call upon God for his mercy for our sins and grace for life. Now, all that said, there is one person in this list who who presents to us a beautiful picture of this life. And that's Enoch in verses 21 to 24. Enoch was the seventh in line. Uh, Sevens are usually significant in the Bible. Um, And so Enoch is singled out and twice is mentioned in his life on this earth he walked with God. Verses 22 and 24. He walked with God. And notice the intimacy of that statement. He walked with God. Enoch did not just merely walk before God. 
as a servant. But he walked with God as a friend. And Enoch joined Moses and Abraham and maybe some others who could say that he was a friend of God. And this shows us that even though there has been a fall and every generation is tainted by sin, that even in this state, intimate communion with God is possible. And the glorious thing about Enoch is he wasn't distracted by the sins of this world. He wasn't, his eyes weren't fixed on the world around him. Some of us are like that. Some of us are bowed down by and distracted by all the things that we can see around us. And, and we say to ourselves, how can anybody resist? It's utterly hopeless. We've just got to go with the flow. Not, not Enoch. As Calvin put it in one of his sermons on this, he said, Enoch did not watch what men were doing. Instead, he looked to God. He wanted God. He wanted communion with God in a fallen world. What an encouragement Enoch is to Christians in a godless age. That God is able to reach down to a sinner like Enoch in a fallen world and walk in life with him so that Enoch walks with God. But here's the best encouragement of all. That enigmatic statement, and God took him. God took him. In other words, he didn't die. He was taken away to be with God forever. And Hebrews 11 verse 5 tells us what marked Enoch out was a living faith in God. And so, in that faith, he didn't taste death. He didn't taste death in all its aspects. He didn't die physically, as it turned out. He didn't suffer the eternal death. the death of eternal judgment. And in fact, he lived a new life with God. A life given by God to enable him to walk with him. This is the grace of God at work in the life of Enoch. And this is what God is about now. Even now, through his spirit. The spirit's not mentioned here in Genesis chapter 5. I have no doubt that the Holy Spirit is at work. Uh, because the spirits, the way of salvation has not changed. The Holy Spirit wants us to be new people, to live a new life, to walk with God, to have fellowship with God, to have friendship with God. And that's what Enoch teaches us. It's what God is about now. He's in the business of giving us life so that we can have fellowship with him now and one day he will take his beloved children to be with him forever freed from the miseries of this life do you have communion with God today if you're saying no maybe that's true maybe there's somebody here who doesn't know God yet then perhaps the reason is that you're too interested in what people around you are doing And that you've not come to the point of repenting of all your sins. You've not yet returned to God and you've not yet called upon him. 
But you can do that now. You can call to him in prayer. You can plead with him for mercy about your sin. You can ask for grace from him uh, that's uh, to give you that communion with him which is life eternal. You know, eternal life is not just living forever. It is, as, John, as Jesus prayed in John 17, eternal life is to know God. And if you do that, if you come to God in prayer in this way, then he will do it. He will give you that life and you will be changed forever and you will be saved forever. I pray that everybody will come to him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, marvellous chapter, which at first sight doesn't look very promising, but we see some wonderful truths here that remind us of your continuing grace to a fallen people. And Father, I pray that if there are any who are yet to turn to God and call upon him, that you grant them grace to be able to do so, and that they would be enabled to enter into a new life in walking with God through Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.